Welcome to Coach House Talks. Okay, let's open with a quiz, because I like a bit of interaction. You've already seen the questions up on the, on the uh, screen here. Got six random scriptures here, just pick completely at random, as I always do. And the question is, which of these scriptures relates to the book of Exodus? Okay, so we've got Zacchaeus. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. We've got Matthew, that's Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Again, from the Sermon on the Mount, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That scripture should spring out at you as being from the Lord's Prayer. Uh, no one can serve two masters. You will hate the one and love the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. Uh, and then Mark was, uh, in Mark, we've got Jesus saying, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people, not the people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. And then again in Mark's gospel, Andy's just said it. Do not be afraid, he said. Take courage, I am here. Okay, does anyone want to shout out A, B, C, D, E, or F? Which one is from the book of Exodus? Got a lot of participation here. Are we not sure? E, Jed says E. Anybody else? You said all of them. <laughs> Okay, the answer is actually all of them, okay? And I'm just making a point here about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that if we don't understand the Old Testament, you will never pick up the relationship between the new and the old. That's why it's really important. Okay, so <clears throat> into the main stuff. Let's see where we start. Yeah, not quite at the beginning because we've done one already. So um, a couple of weeks back, well, four weeks back, actually, remember Andy showed us an example with the chairs, okay? And we learned that God never turned his back on us. It was us, we chose to walk away from him, okay? From the third chapter of Genesis onwards, God's only purpose and indeed, the underlying purpose of all Scripture has been to tell us why we should turn back to him. Sounds really easy, doesn't it? Yeah? If turning back to God was just as easy as saying, just believe in Jesus, then we wouldn't have needed 66 books in the Bible and 6,500 years of history. What this is telling me is that there must be a reason why it took so long to get from Adam and Eve to Jesus. There must be a reason why so many Old Testament characters needed to show some facet of what Jesus would be like well before he was born. There must be a reason why so many prophets had to come and suffer to tell the people about what God was going to do. Today, as we look at Exodus, <clears throat> I hope we'll begin to answer these questions. I want to start, though, by pointing out um, a bit of a worrying trend in the church today. And by the church, I don't mean this church, the coach house. I mean the church generally, the church out there. Actually, if I'm honest, I don't think this is going to apply to anyone in our church, but then maybe it does. 
so it's worth considering. And even if it doesn't apply to you, then you might meet someone who does feel like this, and hopefully that will give you the, uh, the words to be able to correct them. So what is this trend? It's this. There are some people that say that Christianity is only about Jesus and that the Old Testament is no longer relevant. It's only what Jesus said that is really important. So, is this true? Well, let's first of all see what Jesus himself said about this. So this comes from Luke chapter 16, verse 31. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. Now what Jesus is saying here is that if you don't read and understand all the books of the Old Testament, then you're not really listening to him. As far as Jesus was concerned, the books of the Old Testament were important. Did anybody else say anything about this subject? Well, not surprisingly, yes, they did. The Apostle Paul, writing to his friend Timothy, wrote these often quoted words. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize the wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Now, when Paul said all scripture, what he literally meant was the Old Testament, because when he wrote that, the New Testament hadn't been written. In fact, what he was writing was part of the New Testament. And from this, we can see that if we try to teach ourselves using only the New Testament, then our teaching and our correction and our understanding of right and wrong will be incomplete. Did anybody else say anything about this? Well, unsurprisingly, yes. Here's how John describes Jesus at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. What John is saying here is that the words written in the Old Testament were Jesus himself. And this statement brings us right back to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 16. We've come full circle. And that's that if we reject any part of the Old Testament, we're rejecting Jesus himself. Okay, so now we've established just how important the Old Testament is. Let's get into the book. The second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. You know, one of the fun parts of speaking is... Um, I have no idea what's going to come up here. And sometimes I think one thing's going to come up and something different actually comes up. It's real good fun. Okay, so let's remind ourselves of what Andy said in week one. A tip when reading the Old Testament. Follow the seed. Follow the title bearer, the promise keeper, and see that God is and always will be faithful to his promises. And by the seed, we mean the ancestral line of Jesus. That long line of fathers of fathers and all those so-and-so begat so-and-so and so on. 
all those that lead in a line all the way from Adam to Jesus. We also mean all those people in the Old Testament who are what we call a type of Jesus. Now, I'll just explain that. A type is usually the word used about someone who did something that shows us something about what Jesus was going to be like. And we're going to come across one of these guys today. We've already heard a bit about, uh, in the past four weeks, we've heard a bit about this with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. But now we're moving on into Exodus. And here we're going to meet Moses, who's one of Israel's greatest heroes. They venerated Moses quite extensively. And still do today, if you're Jewish. Here's a couple of quick interesting facts about Moses. First of all, he's the Old Testament character most mentioned by Jesus in his ministry. And second, he just happens to be the person who wrote down the first five books of the Bible. If you were here in week one, then you'll have heard this already, but it's worth reminding ourselves that Jesus, speaking in John chapter 5 and verse 46, said, If you really believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. The people to whom Jesus was talking believed in God because of what Moses had said. Jesus is correcting their view by pointing out that the first five books of the Bible are not about Adam or Abraham or Joseph or indeed Moses, but are about him, Jesus. If you don't read the Old Testament, your picture of Jesus is incomplete. So, remember the guiding principle. Follow the seed. Now, I'm just going to digress for a moment to draw your attention to a small fact. Uh, And hopefully this slide will be all right when it comes up. I want to draw your attention to something. Has anybody ever asked you why are there four Gospels? It's a good question, isn't it? Maybe you haven't actually been asked that by anybody, but you might have thought about it yourself. And in truth, it's actually quite a complicated question, but we don't really want to go too deeply into it, but I want to draw your attention to a simple observation. Okay? Now, the Pentateuch, or Torah, which are both names for the first five books of the Bible, consists of one book which sets the scene. That's Genesis on the left there. Is that the left? Yeah, it is, isn't it? Okay. Genesis, which covers the first two and a half thousand years of history or so, followed by four books about the same person, Moses, who lived for 120 years, but the real focus is on the 40 years Yeah, the 40 most important years. And then in the New Testament, we've got four books about one person who lived for 33 years, followed by another book about what happened next. And as we're still in the age of the Acts, we can call that 2,000 years. Can you see the symmetry that this creates? The Bible is perfect, yeah? Nothing in the Bible happens by accident. This symmetry is a demonstration of God's care and attention to how these things work. So if you wonder why there's four Gospels, it's because there's four books at the other end that are the mirror image, okay? 
right back to the book of Exodus. Now, we're not going to look at all of it because <clears throat> um, there's one guy in the Bible, actually, who did read all of it. He was called Nehemiah, um, and he stood up, right? And it took all morning, yeah? They were there all morning, so we're probably not going to do that. I did think about reading the whole book, but then, yeah, we would be here till this afternoon. So it's just a potted history and a quick overview of kind of how it looks. And then we'll just go into a little bit more specifically and see what we can match up between the old and the new. So Exodus starts off where Genesis left. And in fact, if you read your Bible, if there were no title pages and all those other funny bits that go in, and you read straight from one to the other, you wouldn't even notice that you'd changed books because the story just continues. Now, let's kick off with the story. Have we got the map, Jamie? So he wondered what this was for, and it's obviously so I don't have to stand right in front of it because people are watching on Zoom. Yeah? So at the beginning of the book, right, the Israelites were living... Somewhere over here. This is not the map I gave you, actually. You've changed it. <laughs> they were living somewhere over here in the Nile Delta, the very fertile area. That's what they'd been given. So it's no surprise that they were doing quite well. And over time, what had happened was the 72 people who originally went down there, which we heard about with Jacob and Joseph, had grown to around 1.2 million people. Yeah? So they were in that fertile area. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to do a quick whistle top on this, map, on this map to give you a clue as to where certain places are. Now, Mount Sinai is down here. Okay? And we're going to touch on Mount Sinai twice this morning because two things happened at Mount Sinai. We'll come back to that. First was that's where the burning bush was. And second... That's where the Ten Commandments were given. So instead of going from there to there, which would have took about eight days to walk, they decided that they'd come all the way down here and all the way back up here. And they'd have a stop off on the way and at Acacia Grove and one or two other places. Sounded nice. It was nicer when it sounded than it was in the publicity document. Um, but as it was, they spent 40 years getting around that time. Now, hopefully, we'll cover a bit of that. I think Daniel might throw a bit of light on that as he speaks in a couple of weeks' time. Now, the problem here is that the Israelites were really successful, okay? Because God was obviously blessing them, even though they were in difficult times. And that really bothered the authorities. Pharaoh was not happy. And he decided to make life difficult for the Israelites, okay? Now, what you've got to understand here is that at the time, the ruler, Pharaoh, was effectively the ruler of the world as far as they were concerned. And here, he's an example of the ultimate ruler of this world, Satan. And his objective back then was the same as Satan's objective is now. He wanted to prevent the people from worshipping God. That was his objective. He wanted to oppress the people. Ultimately, he wanted to kill the people because he'd got fed up of them. 
Now, in chapter 2, we meet Moses. And he's the man who would lead Israel out of captivity. Moses' calling sets the scene for the Bible's second great rescue story. Okay? This is the little trip out. Now, like Noah before him, it did change very quickly, that didn't it? <laughs> Blink and you miss it. Okay, so like Noah before him, and anybody who didn't know that was Noah? Hopefully not. Moses was about to act as a saviour for the nation. His job was to protect the bloodline that we spoke about earlier. That one that leads to the seed. And in doing what he was doing, he's providing us a glimpse into the future to tell us something about the ultimate saviour, Jesus. In between these two stories, there are four more rescue stories. Lot, twice, Isaac, Joseph. God is clearly making a point here, isn't he? First, that we need rescuing. And second, to the people of the day, that someone was coming later to effect a rescue once and for all. The six rescue stories, these first six stories, are all partial and incomplete. When the last rescuer comes, Jesus, his rescue will be complete and final. It's impossible to understand the perfect completeness of Jesus' rescue unless you compare it with the partial and incomplete rescues of the Old Testament. So remember this pattern. The first rescue, one family. Second rescue, one nation. Final rescue, all the people belonging to God. Okay, chapter 2 of Exodus closes with the words, and these are very important words that are often quoted. The Israelites cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. God always hears our groaning. He always acts. He always acts in his time and never in our time. The book of Exodus shows us exactly how God acted back then as an example of how he will act in the future. Chapter 3 of Exodus, we read about the calling of Moses. This is the bit where God appears to Moses as a burning bush. And this event tells us quite a lot about what sort of a person Moses was. And it also tells us a bit about what we're like as well. So at the time of this event, Moses was 80 years old. He was married, he had a son, and he was living a quiet life as a shepherd. He was just minding his own business and getting on with life. His pension plan was all sorted, and retirement was not far off. But God had other ideas. God appeared to Moses to tell him that he had been specially chosen to go to Pharaoh to organize the movement of over a million people 
from Egypt to Canaan. Now, obviously, Moses was thrilled with this idea and took to the task enthusiastically. Or maybe not. So we've got God calling Moses into his service, but Moses is now going to find excuse after excuse after excuse because he doesn't really want to do it. And here's the excuses. So first of all, he says, I'm not up to this job. God counters this by saying, I will be with you. Fair do. Secondly, Moses tries asking, how can I explain to the people who you are? And God counters this by explaining to Moses that he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of today. And he uses these famous words, I am who I am. Now, just going to go into this a little bit, because the real meaning of this phrase is lost in an English translation. Language requires understanding sometimes. And there's a link here between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the Hebrew word here for I am is hoya. Don't expect you to remember that, but I'll tell you what it is anyway. Now, as read by somebody who is fluent in Hebrew, an Israelite, this word has a continuous meaning. So it might be better to express this in English as I am, I always have been, and I always will be. Now, I know this is the case because this phrase appears in the New Testament. In fact, it's in Hebrews 13, verse 8. And you'll recognize this because the writer says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay? Did you match that with that when you read it? No. Okay. But a Hebrew would have done, and the author of the letter to the Hebrews understood the original meaning of hoya, and was changing God for Jesus. He's only changing one word. And what he's doing is emphasizing that the God that the readers of the letter thought that they knew from the Old Testament and Jesus Christ are, in fact, one and the same. That's what Hebrews is proving to people throughout the book, by the way. So it therefore stands that it was Jesus who was speaking to Moses in the burning bush. Okay, next three complaints, because Moses hasn't finished. It's full of complaints. Thirdly, he says, the people won't believe me. So God says, here's three signs that you can use to prove, this, to prove your status. Yeah. Fourth, he says, he's a rubbish speaker. Now, this makes me happy, right? Okay, Because it's good to know that I've got something in common with Moses. Anyway, God counters this by reminding Moses that just as he'd made Moses, so he would give Moses the words and the ability to be able to speak. Now, Moses foolishly ignores the fact that God keeps correcting him. And he tells God that in his opinion, he's got the wrong man and he ought to send somebody else. There are not many places in Scripture where God gets angry, but this is one of them. And God's solution is 
to get Moses' brother Aaron to go with him. And that's the end of the discussion. God's spoken. Questions closed. Maybe we should ask ourselves, am I making any of these excuses for not doing something that God wants me to do? I can confess to you, actually, brothers and sisters, that as Andy's alluded to last week, for the last couple of years, I've been giving Andy excuse after excuse for not accepting why I should accept the call to eldership. It's not Andy that's asking me that, it's God himself. I've given him all those excuses. And I've read that and I've gone, can't make any more excuses because God's going to get angry with me, isn't he? So I've had to submit. Okay, uh, we know about some of the other bits of the book of Exodus. We know the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the manna and the quails, the water from the rock, the tabernacle, the golden calf, and all about the journey from um, Egypt to the promised land. But we're not going to look at any of those today. Hopefully you know what all those are. Uh, But we're not going to look at any of those today because there's two important ones that I've not mentioned yet. Firstly, the Passover, which Andy is going to be covering in detail next week. And then there's the law, which Andy's just read to you before. And now the law, or more specifically, is the Ten Commandments. And we're going to just take a quick uh, look at how that relates to the New Testament or other bits of Scripture. Remember the key question? How does it fit with the New Testament? And more importantly, what does it tell us about Jesus? Now, Psalm 119 reveals more about the importance of the law and helps us to focus on its meanings. Psalm 119 is all about the law in the sense of the whole of the Torah. That's all five books. But right at its heart is the Ten Commandments, those rules that we keep referring to. The psalmist opens the psalm with, Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. The psalm continues with 176 more verses. Well, actually 175 more because I've just read one. 176 altogether. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. Every single verse is drawing your attention to the law, to some aspect or meaning of the law. The psalmist yearns to be made right by the law, but recognises that by himself he cannot keep the law. Only God can grant the psalmist the status of having kept the law. The psalmist has broken the law and must rely on God's grace to overlook his sins and look only at his heart's desire. Now, because the psalmist lived before Jesus, he could only appeal to God for mercy. But we have an advantage because Jesus has been revealed to us. Jesus was the only person to have kept the law perfectly. 
and thus is the only person to have any right to stand before the Father in heaven for all eternity. I cannot stand in the presence of Almighty God because I know that I've broken the law. That's what the law is telling me, the Ten Commandments. I know which ones I've broken. So, is the law still relevant today? Well, remember at the beginning we said, all scripture is useful. In fact, Jesus himself said this, even though heaven and earth will eventually pass away, his words, and by this he meant the law, would not pass away. The law is going nowhere. So Jesus told you that. Jesus goes a little bit further than this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, being a bit like Moses, remember, I'm not very good at explaining the law, but fortunately, I know somebody who is. And that's the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul wrote quite a bit about the law in the book of Romans. If you want to go back to that at some point, um, that's a good read. In Jesus' time, the law had become more important than God himself. The Pharisees were especially using the law for their own personal gain, as, sadly, were many ordinary people. It had become a societal system rather than the benchmark that God had, had intended it to be. In the book of Romans, Paul explains that by accepting Jesus, we are no longer subject to the law, but he goes on to emphasize that the law is still the basic guideline against which we measure ourselves. So, yes, the law is still relevant today. Now, remember there are Ten Commandments, and Jesus was once asked a question, wasn't he? He said, which of the commandments is the greatest? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that some of the commandments don't matter. He's not discarding commandments. He's just grouping them into two easy-to-remember parts. First, the ones that apply to God, and second, the ones that apply to people. So, here's the closing bit. <clears throat> and uh, I've got a warning that this is going to go off in a minute. <laughs> I can't imagine that. So uh, let's have the uh, next slide, please. So these are the Ten Commandments. So you should recognize these from what we've got before. You shall have no other gods before me. Now what I've put on this side is I've put what Jesus said. Okay, so we've got some comparisons here. Not going to read through them all, but I'll just highlight them here. So 
Jesus said, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Okay, that's Jesus' interpretation of the first commandment. Second one, no one can serve two masters. Third one, don't swear an oath at all, for it is by heaven, for it is God's throne. And then remember the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was made for man, not for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath. We've heard that one once already. Okay, these are the four commandments that apply to God. There's six others that apply to people. If we just flick forward, please, Morgan. So, honour your mother and father. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Okay, now let's have a think about the next one. You shall not murder. It's fairly straightforward, isn't it? But look, Jesus is going to say, that's not enough. Because if you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be subject to judgment. Yeah? The bottom one, uh, sorry, the second to bottom, you shall not give false testimony, sometimes translated, don't lie. Jesus says everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Okay? Jesus is taking the Ten Commandments and he's making them more than that. He's padding them out with some more understanding. This is hard. This is hard, isn't it? Yeah? Have a think for a minute. Have you broken any of those laws? Have I bro- I've already told you that I've broken the law. I've told you that already. Okay? Are you guilty? And let me tell you this, that if you think that you haven't broken any of these laws, then you've just broken the ninth law. I'll tell you that for sure. Okay? You can challenge me on that later if you like. Now listen, brothers and sisters, if it was hard to keep the law, then surely it's even harder to keep Jesus' interpretations of the law. In his first letter to the Corinthian church, Paul wrote, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, greedy, drunkards, abusive, or cheat people. None of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you were like that once. Now, I think Paul was being generous in saying that, okay? Because I think he should have said, all of you were once like that. If you've broken any of these rules, you have no right to inherit any part of the kingdom of heaven. And that's twice I've said that now. So what hope is there? It seems as though we're all condemned to spend eternity somewhere other than in the presence of our holy God. But there is good news. It's great to finish with some good news. So let's continue reading from that same piece of scripture in the letter to the Corinthians. Because it says, some of you, or all of you, were once like that, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the law is only pointing one way, and that is towards the seed, Jesus Christ. Remember the question at the beginning, why should I turn back to him? Well, the law 
is telling you why. Because if you've broken the law, you cannot be in the presence of Almighty God. It's only by turning to Jesus, the one who, only one who has ever kept the law, that you can have any hope. If he's asking you to turn back to him, if God's spoken to you this morning, don't be like Moses with a long string of excuses, but be like the psalmist and ask God to write his laws on your heart. Amen. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.